So we come to our text here this morning as we move along in our um, studies through the Gospel of Mark. And we're, the, the title of the message this morning is uh, The Deeper Need. And so we're going to get to looking at um, how Jesus addresses uh, the deeper need here in a moment. But we want to walk through a few things before we get to that. But just to put it in context, Jesus uh, had gone on a circuit preaching in the synagogues throughout all of Galilee. Um, and he's now returned home to Capernaum. So the things that we just read about here in the verses, these things are happening there. In the home, uh, prob probably the home of uh, Simon Peter, where it was Jesus's home as well uh, when he was there in town. So these things are happening there in the home. Now, Matthew and Luke also record this event. Uh, but interestingly, Matthew says nothing about the man being lowered in through the roof. Nothing at all. Doesn't even mention that part of it. He just talks about the uh, paralytic being healed. And Luke tells us an interesting little side note that Pharisees and teachers of the law were there out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. So in this massive crowd that gathered in the home there, uh, there were these Pharisees and these teachers of the law. And as we see in the story, they were there more to find fault with Jesus than to actually uh, receive from his teaching. But Luke adds just an interesting little note. Luke says, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And so let's look at a couple things here. Let's look first of all at the scene itself. So uh, the scene is um, they are gathered together in the house so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. So the houses in those days, um, this was probably a, a fairly decent sized house. You know, some people think of them as just like, a, like one room, uh, but that's not necessarily the case. There were one room houses, but there were also uh, houses with many rooms. And, and this seems like, just as you read the story, that it was probably the kind of house where you came in off the street into sort of like a courtyard type of a thing, and then you had uh, several rooms that would surround the courtyard. Whatever it looked like exactly, um, it was really, really crowded. And it was so crowded that people were uh, overflowing out into the streets, and so we see that as these men come uh, with their friend trying to get uh, him in to see Jesus, they realize this is a hopeless cause. We're never going to make our way through the crowd. So they go up on the roof, which would have been uh, easily accessible because in those days, and even today in Israel, um, there are these uh, terrorist um, kind of rooftop gardens or patios. Uh, every time we go to Jerusalem, 
the, the place where our Bible college, we have a Bible college located in the old city of Jerusalem near the Jaffa Gate. And um, it's at the Imperial Hotel where we uh, have our students, uh, that's their dorm. And I love to go up on the uh, roof there. It's like a patio and you can look over the whole city from the rooftop there. So a common kind of a thing. So they would go up onto the roof and um, in this particular case, in this particular location, it was obviously fairly easy to remove the branches and, and some of the, uh, the clay and the baked mud to open up an area for them to lower this man into the room. So the man we read here was a paralytic. And, and obviously from the context, the fact that he's being carried, uh, we know that he at uh, least he couldn't walk. So how much further his paralysis extended beyond that, we don't know. But one of the things that I always like as I read this story is, is the faith and the enthusiasm and the determination of the friends. I mean, these are the kind of friends you want to have because they're like, okay, we're going to take you to Jesus. And they get there and there's a crowd. And, you know, some might say, look, this is not going to happen today. This is impossible. We might as well just wait and come back another day. But, but not these friends. These friends were determined to get their friend there before the Lord. And Mark mentions the fact here that Jesus took note of their faith. Look in verse five. When Jesus saw their faith. So, you know, I mean, just kind of use your imagination for a moment. You're, you're there, you're inside, and you're sitting, listening to the teaching of Jesus, and, and no doubt you're um, just, you know, caught up in, in on every word that he's saying, and then all of a sudden you hear this commotion above you. Now, you know, when, when, you're, when you're preaching and there starts to be a commotion, you know, you try to ignore it. You, you try to pretend like whatever it is, is, is going to go away. And, uh, you know, sometimes it does. Sometimes it's in our day, sometimes it's a cell phone ringing, Right. Or sometimes, you know, somebody gets up and they're, you know, moving around and trying to, you know, find another seat or what, whatever. But I, I've had this experience many times, you know, either preaching myself or listening to somebody. When there's a disturbance, you just sort of hope like, okay, we're going to get through this and then we're going to be able to continue to focus. But this, this situation would have just kind of gone from bad to worse, because, you know, they would have heard, no doubt, the, the noise of people up on the, the roof, which to them would have been the ceiling. But then, undoubtedly, as they started to kind of rip up part of the roof, stuff probably started falling down onto the ground. And I wonder if there was even a certain point where everybody just stopped. Jesus had to stop, and they all just looked up and just waited for whatever was going to happen to happen. And then suddenly... A man is being lowered down on a mat by ropes. That would have been absolutely amazing to see that. But apparently, Jesus was impressed by this. 
This was something that you could almost see Jesus even chuckling a little bit. You know, just like, wow, amazing. These guys have faith. And so we see that he took note of their faith. And then as we come to uh, now focusing on the action of Jesus, it's clear that Jesus is moved by their faith because he, he um, acknowledges their faith. When he saw their faith, it's then that he said to the paralytic, you know, the Lord loves it when we believe that he can and will act on our behalf. Uh, how is it that so often, I think we all are guilty of this, I think when we come to God with things, we so often come feeling like we're burdening him or feeling like, you know, he's probably not going to answer our request. You know, why, why do we do that? But, but I think it's a fairly common way that, that we approach the Lord. But of course, that's the opposite of the way the Bible tells us that we should approach the Lord. You know, when we're, Jesus invites us to come. The Lord invites us to come. He wants us to come by faith. And, and we see that here as these men were demonstrating this faith. Jesus was, he was impressed with their faith. And, and so it is for us. You know, when we go to the Lord and we say, Lord, you know, I believe, Lord, that you can do this. And I believe that you want to do this. And I'm going to trust you. You know, God's not saying, no, 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 you know, you shouldn't do that because I'm in charge here and you never know what I'm going to do. And, uh, but, but sometimes we think like that. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. He that comes to God must believe that he is and a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's God's word to us. When we come to him, we're to believe that he is. We're to believe that he is active and he's loving and he's kind and he's generous and, and all of those things. And that he rewards those who seek him. So these guys were coming with the right attitude. They came really um, with, I think, what would be a good example of childlike faith. Jesus commended childlike faith. As a matter of fact, he said to his own close followers, those disciples around him, he said, you know, unless your uh, faith becomes like that of a child, you won't even enter the kingdom. So Jesus commends childlike faith. And these guys are really demonstrating childlike faith, childlike in the sense that they just believe that God's going to do something here. They aren't so concerned to try to figure it out. They're just, we know if we can just get our friend there to Jesus, he's going to do something. And indeed, Jesus did do something. The, the next thing I want us to note is the tenderness of Jesus toward the man. And so when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. The word son is actually, in the Greek, the word child rather than son. So Jesus says, child. 
And, and Matthew tells us that Jesus actually said something else that Mark doesn't record. Jesus said, be of good cheer. I like the way the NLT renders it. It says, be encouraged, my child. That's what Jesus said to him. When he, now you got to just wonder for a moment what the, you know, what the paralytic himself thought about all of this. Now it says when Jesus saw their faith, like we already pointed out, was he, was he included in the there? Was it the faith of the four men or was it the faith of all five of them? Did the paralytic himself say, hey, why don't we go up on the roof and you guys can lower me down? Or did the paralytic, he was just sort of at the mercy of these guys. We, we don't really know exactly what the case was, but we see the tenderness of Jesus toward him and notice the thing that Jesus says. He says to him, son or child, your sins are forgiven you. Now, here's a question. Why would Jesus say this? Because obviously, in one sense, that was not why the man was brought there to, to have his sins forgiven. He was brought there because he was paralyzed, and they believed that Jesus could heal him. But, but Jesus says the very first thing he says he says, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. So, so why would Jesus say this? Well, perhaps the man was possessed of a terrible fear born of Jewish belief that his sins might prevent his healing. You see, that was a, that was a teaching among the Jews at the time that your sin would actually prevent you from getting any kind of help from God, any kind of blessing from God, and in this case, any kind of a healing. And maybe the man, just being aware of his own sinful state, maybe he was dropped into the situation with that sort of anxiety that, you know, I, I, I know I'm a sinner. I mean, why, why should I expect that... Jesus is going to do anything for me. So it could have been that, but it could be also that sin was at the root of his physical affliction. Now, generally speaking, in the scripture, illness and disease are not directly connected to individual sin. So generally speaking, that's the case. But there are times when the sin is directly connected uh, or, the, or the sickness is directly connected to the, to the sin. Now, some people have uh, misunderstood this and there are even people today who think that anytime uh, uh, you know, there's any kind of a sickness, especially with a, a you know, a believing person, that that sickness is due to sin in their life. And they say, okay, well, you know, before you're ever going to get healed, you got to repent of the sin. And then people live under this burden like, you know, God's never going to heal me or, or, or touch me or have mercy on me because I've got sin in my life. I've, I've tried to confess every sin that I could possibly, uh, you know, think of, but, but nothing really changes. Because the fact of the matter is that's not necessarily the case. 
So sometimes, on a few occasions, yes, there's a direct link. Uh, but most of the time, there is no direct link. But perhaps on this occasion, there was a direct link be- between this man's paralysis and his sin. And it is something that he would have been well aware of. So he would have been dropped into this situation knowing himself. Maybe nobody else knew, but maybe he did know indeed that there was at the root of this was, you know, maybe back sometime way in the past, there was some sin that led to this. So it could have been the case there. So Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. But there's another thing that's happening here. And here's what it is. Remember that the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law from all around Galilee, Judea, and, and Jerusalem are there. They're there to find fault with him. And so undoubtedly, Jesus is intentionally confronting the unbelief of the Pharisees and the scribes. So that would be another reason why Jesus would say, your sins are forgiven. Jesus did this deliberately to bring out the resistance toward him that was in the hearts of the religious leaders of Israel. Now, remember when we started the Gospel of Mark, remember I told you that we're already a year into the ministry of Jesus. So a year has already taken place that that neither Matthew, Mark, or Luke even address it. They, 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 they pick up the ministry uh, with the Galilean ministry of Jesus. But Jesus had had a ministry that was predominantly in Judea for a year earlier. And as I pointed out, John chapter 1 through 5, that's the record of the events that happened prior to this. So the reason why these religious leaders would have come from Judea and Jerusalem is because they had already had a confrontation with Jesus in Jerusalem. And it was there that Jesus had healed uh, that lame man, and it was there that they had accused him of violating the Sabbath and those things. So, so this group that's there that day, they're there on a mission to entrap Jesus. And he knows that, of course. And so, interestingly, he puts out the challenge by using these terms, my child, your sins are forgiven. He was making an indirect claim to be God. That's what he was doing. He was making an indirect claim to be God. Now, they, of course, were right about one thing. As we go on, it says, um, and some of the scribes, verse 6, were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So they were right about that. They were right that only God could forgive sin. They were wrong about the identity of the Messiah. That's what they were wrong about. And so the Messiah, or as Jesus prefers, the Son of Man, he tells them that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Verse 8, but immediately 
when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And immediately he rose up, took up the bed and went out in the presence of them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this. So this is a contest that's happening here between Jesus and these religious leaders. And he's just thrown the knockout punch by basically just pronouncing this man healed, but by doing so through uh, the forgiveness of his sins. Now, we need to understand that forgiving sin is the right of God alone. Only God can forgive sin because all sin is ultimately against God. As King David said in his own confession and recorded in Psalm 51, he, he cried out, he said, against you and you only have I sinned and done this great evil in your sight. And David said this in response to his, his own sin against um, uh, Bathsheba and Uriah. But, but David takes it beyond them. Of course, it affected them. But David says, against you and you only have I sinned. And that is true. Sin is ultimately against God. Now, even though the priests during the Old Testament period and we under the New Testament relationship can declare someone's sin forgiven, we can't actually forgive their sin. So under the Old Testament system, uh, the worshiper came and offered the prescribed sacrifices. And when everything was said and done, the priest could assure them that your, your sins are covered. And so likewise, remember when Jesus would ultimately, or eventually, I mean, send out his uh, disciples into the world with a gospel, he says, whosoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. But it's not giving us the power to forgive sin. It's giving us the ability to declare a person forgiven based upon their response to the gospel. So... I can say to a person, based upon their putting their faith in Jesus or based upon their repentance or based upon their confession of sin, I can say to somebody, your sins are forgiven, but it's not because I've forgiven their sins. You know, when I was growing up as a Roman Catholic, uh, we would go to the confessional and we would go in and kneel down before the priest who was on the other side of the wall there. It was a terrifying experience, actually. And you'd have to think of everything that you could remember having done wrong. And you had to tell that to the priest. And then, you know, he would absolve you and then he would, you know, give you your penance and so forth. But the fact of the matter is he couldn't absolve us because he didn't have the power to do that. None of us have 
the power to do that. Again, we can pronounce a person forgiven, but we do not do the forgiving in, in regard to the sin itself. Now, I can forgive a person for the sins they com- commit against me, but that doesn't necessarily mean they are forgiven by God. Must, one must directly confess to God. You see, if somebody sins against me and they come and say, you know, Brian, I'm really sorry. You know, this is what I did and I ask you to forgive me. Of course, I can forgive them and I should forgive them if they're sincere. I'm called to forgive them. But that doesn't mean that God's forgiven them because just because they're admitting that they did something wrong to me, they're not necessarily simultaneously acknowledging that I sinned against God. Now, if they are doing that, then, of course, God knows that, and he's forgiving them as well. But the point is, God is the one who forgives sin. And they understood that. And, of course, Jesus understood that as well. And that's why this is his indirect claim to being God. Your sins are forgiven you. That's what he said. And the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin. Now, he asked them this question in response to their being critical. Uh, He says, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk? So which is easier? Well, it depends on how you're looking at it. If you're looking at it from the merely human side of things, it's obviously easier to say your sins are forgiven because you, know, you could argue that that's happened without necessarily having any physical evidence for it. So from the human side, that seems like it would be easier to say that. If you say rise up and walk, then something's got to happen in order to prove that you have authority. The person has to rise up and walk. But Jesus says, of course, he says, uh, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise up and walk. But if you look at it from the other side, if you look at it from the heavenly side, saying your sins are forgiven, if you're not God, is impossible. Because as we've already said, God alone can forgive sin. And I love what one writer said. He said, Jesus is also saying, my friends, it is going to be infinitely harder to affect the forgiveness of sins than you can imagine. I'm not just a miracle worker. I'm the savior. Any miracle worker can take up, can say, take up your bed and walk. But only the savior of the world can say to a human being, all your sins are forgiven. So it depends on what side of it uh, you come from. If you come from the human side, it seems like it'd be easier to say your sins are forgiven. But if you come from the divine side, well, we know that only God can forgive sin. But Jesus, in forgiving sin and restoring him from the paralysis, he gives a convincing proof that he has the authority. So, but there's a deeper lesson here. And this is the one that we want to spend the rest of our time on. The deeper lesson, of course, is that what seemed to be this man's greatest problem was not really his greatest problem. 
what he perhaps thought and his friends evidently thought was his greatest problem was not his greatest problem. He had a a deeper problem. And so often, what we think we need most is not what we really need. Because we usually think first and foremost of our physical, emotional, material needs. But our truest need is deeper than that. You see, our truest need is really spiritual. Now, you can imagine and understand that this paralyzed man would have wanted to be healed more than anything else in the world. You know, if if you've ever been sick for an extended period of time, um, you know exactly what this is like. You just long for the days when you actually feel good again. You just hope and, and, and just dream of that time when you might perhaps be better, be back to the way you used to be. And it, it kind of just becomes an, an all-consuming uh, desire. And so he was probably thinking that if he could just walk again, everything would be great. Life would be wonderful. And it might have been for a while. But once the newness of being able to walk again wore off, he would realize that he was the same person with the same problems, only now he was walking around rather than being carried around. You know, that, that's is exactly what happens. And, and not even just only with a, with a sickness, but you know when we find ourselves in any kind of difficulty or any kind of trouble or trial or however you want to describe it, you know, what is the, the foremost thing in our mind so often? It's like, I just got to get out of this situation. And we start to think that if I could just get out of this or if I could just get from this place over to this place, everything would be great. And it is for a moment. It's great. When, when that relief finally comes, when that deliverance finally comes, you're like, oh man, this is so wonderful. But you know, it doesn't take that long before the newness of all that kind of wears off and then you're just sort of back there again like, like, the, like this guy could have been. If it, wasn't, if it was only like, yeah, take up your bed and walk, we'll see you later. You know, it wouldn't have been very long before he could find other things to be discouraged about, other things to be depressed over. If Jesus had, had only addressed the surface need, he wouldn't have benefited the man in the long run. And of course, he wouldn't have helped him in light of eternity. And this is how life is until we get down to the real issues. Isn't it true that we think if I just say, got that, that, that job, if I could just land that job, or if I could just get that promotion, or if we could just move into that house in that neighborhood, or if I could just get that car instead of this one I have, or you know, if I could just find the right woman, or if I could just find the right man. 
or if I could just be with that group of people or be perfectly fit and healthy, everything would be great. We think like this. This is how we think. We think, you know, then I would be happy. Then I would be fulfilled. Then I would be content. But it's not so. It is not so. You see, because there's something deeper at play. Timothy Keller, in his book, Jesus the King, which is a, basically it's a series of sermons through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, He quotes from an article that he read many years ago about the misery of many celebrities. And the writer says this, I pity celebrities. No, I do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame. They worked, they pushed. The morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened and nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. She concluded the article by saying, I think when God wants to play a really rotten, practical joke on people, he grants them their deepest wish. Wow. Well, I don't think that it's God playing a practical joke on people. And he doesn't grant us our deepest wish. He goes beyond our deepest wish to what is really needed. And that's what is happening. That, that's the, the deeper lesson here in the story. The greatest need for this man was forgiveness of sin. The secondary need was his paralysis. Jesus took care of them both. But the priority as Jesus even put it, was the forgiveness of sin. You see, what we really need is a relationship with God. That's what we need. And that relationship begins with the forgiveness of sins. Everything starts with that. Because that's the root of the problem. The root of our problem is that our sins have separated us from God. Isaiah the prophet expressed this in the 59th chapter, the first verse. He said, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear, but your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. See, that's the problem. The problem with the human race is that we're disconnected from our maker. And and not only are we disconnected from him, our sins have actually uh, put us in a state of enmity toward him. So we're, we're in active 
hostile rebellion to our maker. That's what our sins are indicating. We're revolting against his authority. And as a result of that, we're, we're separated from him. But most of the time, we don't realize what, what the problem is. So we think the problem is all of these other external things. And we think that I've got to get this resolved or I've got to get this happening in my life. And, and then this, this nagging, frustrating irritating thing that just seems to constantly be deep down inside of me, it's going to go away. But it doesn't go away. It only can go away when the real issue is dealt with. And so once again, Isaiah speaks to this and the Lord speaking through the prophet says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So God diagnosed the problem centuries before Jesus ever came to solve the problem. And God, of course, made... uh, away during those years. That's what the sacrificial system was all about. That's what the temple was about. That's what the priesthood was about. That's what the sacrifices uh, dealt with. They, They covered sin, but they couldn't take away sin. That was reserved for the Son of God to come. And the reason that Jesus would say that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin was that he was going to make the provision for sin. He was going to provide the atonement, which he did, the atonement coming through his blood because the the Old Testament scriptures, the law had declared that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So Jesus pronounces your sins are forgiven of course, looking forward to the provision that he would make for the sin to be forgiven upon the cross. And so John, writing after the facts, writing in his first epistle, he said this. He said, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we are without sin, we deceive ourselves. That that is a fact. Anyone who claims to be without sin is just self-deluded, self-deceived. And as long as a person claims to be without sin or that sin isn't really an issue, that person will never be able to have their sin forgiven. You see, you have to acknowledge your sin. You have to confess your sin. And initially, that's just simply, Lord, I am a sinner. Now, 
you know, in order to receive the forgiveness that comes through Christ, we receive Christ, but in doing that, we are acknowledging that we are sinners. I mean, thank God you don't have to sit down and try to prepare a list going back your entire life, catalog every sin you ever committed. God knows every sin you ever committed. And all you have to say is, Lord, I am a sinner, have mercy on me. And he does indeed do that because that is why he came into the world. And I love the words from the hymn by William Cooper. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The son of man has power on earth to forgive sin. Have your sins separated you from God? Have you confessed your sin? You know, even as a child of God, you can find yourself disconnected from your father. The relationship is there because you're a child. But the fellowship is broken because of unconfessed sin. How do we resolve that? How do we restore the fellowship? That's, that's the desire of God. How do we restore the fellowship? If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us. And he will cleanse us from all of that unrighteousness. And so just as Jesus looked beyond the physical and into the soul of that man, my child, your sins are forgiven. That's what the Lord delights to say to everyone who will turn to him. That's exactly what he will say. And so whether it's sinning as a child of God that's, that's broken the, the fellowship that you have and, and it needs to be restored, or if it's that in your life you've thought that your problems were other than separation from God. You thought that your problems were other than sin. And maybe there are other problems, but you have to get the root dealt with first. And that happens the moment you come to Jesus. Because when you come to him, it all starts with this. Your sins are forgiven. And then you go forward from there. So Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness of sin. We thank you, Lord, that, that you came to provide for us not only what we could never provide for ourselves, but what we most of the time don't even realize we need. You came to provide forgiveness because you are God who alone can forgive. And Lord, our sin is ultimately against you and you only. And so right here today, Lord, this moment, we receive the forgiveness of sin as we just confess to you, I have sinned. Thank you, Lord, that that instant we confess that, that you forgive. Lord, thank you that the moment that we turn to Jesus and say, Lord, I confess I'm a sinner and I ask you to save me. Lord, that you do that right then, that instant. And I pray if there's anyone with us today, 
that is right at that place where they would say, Lord, forgive me. I'm a sinner. Be my savior. Lord, meet them. Give them that new life. And Lord, bring forth that healing and restoring process that comes from our sins forgiven and a relationship with you, we pray. Amen.